This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with MailChimp's Ben Chestnut and Aaron Walter about their careers, about email marketing, and about how to create creativity. You know, when Aaron came on board, I told him why I needed him, what we needed, and I just gave him the keys. It's really getting out of the way. When companies say failure is not an option, success is no longer an option either. Here's Debbie Millman. I have here in my studio two men who are responsible for sending over 3 billion emails per month. And no, they're not from Nigeria. They're from MailChimp. MailChimp helps people create, send, and track email newsletters. And, as the name implies, they make it fun. Ben Chestnut co-founded the company in 2001, along with Dan Kurzius. Aaron Walter came on in 2008 to do a redesign. Ben and Aaron are now, respectively, the CEO and user experience lead at MailChimp. Ben and Aaron, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks so much for having us. So, more than 3 million people and companies of all sizes in 200 countries use MailChimp to send out about 5 billion emails every month. And you love helping them do it. (laughs) Really? You really like helping people send email? You know, it's it's more like empowering them to do it. Really? It's a a self-serve app and... We love making it easy for them to do it. I'm not in there pushing the send button or anything. But you still get great joy out of knowing that this is happening. Oh, yeah. To watch a small business make money. So I want to give you some stats. Now, because people are sending email as we speak, these are probably not in real time accurate statistics. But Mm -hmm. from like over the weekend, let's say, these are accurate. 34 billion 796,235,769 emails sent to date. 270 million email addresses in the MailChimp system. You send about 95,332,152 emails a day. You get six thousand new customers a day. You have 15,445,000 campaigns. And you state that MailChimp is self-funded, profitable, and slowly taking over the world. First of all, it doesn't seem that slow. But (laughs) what do you attribute this success? Uh, The chimpanzee. Yeah, Freddie? (laughs) Freddie is the reason. (laughs) All right, give us all the details on how that happened. (laughs) Certainly not my uh, business acumen or anything like that. I think we're just making work fun. It's sort of this ulterior motive that we have. I'm going to ask you more about that in a minute. So let's start. Let's go back in time a little bit. Let's figure out how you got here, and then we'll talk about what you're doing while you're here. So, Ben, your brother is a painter and a musician. Your sisters are in the graphic arts. Your mom is an aspiring chef, and you wanted to be a cartoonist. Right. And I understand that when you were 10 years old, you started your very first business. Your entrepreneurial DNA came out, and you started selling cartoons at school when you were 10 years old uh, for 50 cents a piece. Right. 
So, so tell us about that. Like, first of all, what kind of cartoons were they, and what made you decide that you wanted to sell them, and how much money did you make? <laughs> Very competitive pricing, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I, for ten-year-olds. <laughs> like I said, my business acumen, you know, is just not there. I, I think I started with comic books, and then I wanted to get into three D comic books, so I would make my own three D goggles. Really? How and do you do that? My brother always had cellophane for making radio-controlled airplanes. Of course. Slappy. So yeah. he, I would always sneak in his room and steal. Huh. Uh, yeah, so, so you were an entrepreneur and you were also somewhat fearless. And a thief. Yeah. That's the definition <laughs> I, of entrepreneur, I, I think. <laughs> uh, so, 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 Ben, can you describe some of the comics that you created? Uh, it was a really, really lame superhero that I called No Face, and it's because I couldn't draw his face. Basically, it was really oh. lame. <laughs> Did you draw the rest of his body? I drew the rest. I could draw the muscles, the arm, the limbs, just not the face. I, I the hadn't taken art draw. class yet. Yeah. yeah, I think that's why the happy face is so so popular. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, ben, your dad gave you your first computer. What kind of a computer was it? Oh, that would have been a Commodore sixty four. And it was at this point in your life that you thought you wanted to be an engineer, right? Yeah, to play with computers, right. But you ended up going to Georgia Tech and studied physics. I couldn't get into Georgia Tech because I think I doodled too You're much in too class. You're making too many cartoons, yeah. <laughs> counting uh, your money. Yeah, so I, uh, I went to University of Georgia to study physics. Then I transferred to Tech to study industrial design. But when you transferred to tech, didn't you transfer as a physics student because it would be true. easier to get in? Because no one wants to join the physics school at Georgia Tech. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, so it changed everything. It was, it was great. But I understand that at that time you decided that designers were really sneaky people. <laughs> Why is that? It, it was the uh, design director at the industrial design school. Really? So yeah. what happened? What gave you the sense that he was sneaky? He, he looked through my portfolio. He said, this is great. We want you here. But Oh, he was the one that gave you the idea. Said, Why don't you come in under physics and then transfer? <gasps> no. <laughs> I said, this is awesome. That is awesome. <laughs> well, actually, you know what? That's great that he knew that you had this passion and you wanted to do something and had faith in the fact that once you started doing it, you'd be able to keep up. Bill Bullock, sneaky That's designer. Awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so when did you decide to start the Rocket Science Group? Was it immediately after college? Oh, no, no, no. I, I had gotten a job at um, Cox Interactive. They were going to start a whole network of uh, music websites, MP3 mm. music websites. Wow. This was before the iPod was invented, mm -hmm. so maybe too far ahead of its time. Uh, but we, we started that, and three months in, I think the, the whole operation just shut down. We were laid off. Um, we were offered jobs back at Cox, but at that point we had gotten severance pay and decided, you know, if these guys can start a business and utterly fail, we ought to give it a shot. And so that's when you started the Rocket Science Group. Yeah. yeah. Now, when did you decide that you wanted to focus all of your attention on this application that you designed to help people send email? Um, you know, we had built MailChimp on the side and it the numbers were there. It was just a lot more scalable. It was making revenue without us doing anything. So. Don't you love that passive income? Yes. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Beautiful thing. Aaron, when did you join MailChimp? Uh, it was January of 2008. And at that time, you were working as a designer and you were working with the White House, with the U.S. Department of State, that, dozens that of all startups. Came, that came later. Oh, really? So was, MailChimp gave you... I was a you... teacher 
Um, so I thought I, he was a Nigerian, actually. That's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. You should tell her the story. Yeah, I, oh, I want to hear the story. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I taught. Uh, I was a professor for about eight or nine years, and I was teaching design, and I was teaching about usability, interface design, history of communication media, and I had this one class called Findability, and I had my entire class sign up for MailChimp one night. And Ben and Dan um, and Mark were at the office, and they're like, holy shit, all these people just signed up. What's going on? What's this crazy thing? How many students did you have? It was only – it was like 30, but it was just like, you know, all at the same time. And they had this little doorbell thing so they could see when people came to the site. So the doorbell was going bonkers, and it was my class. Um, And this is a typical behavior of a sort of a spam run, just a bunch of spammers coming in really quick, setting up a ton of accounts. Did you shut them down or did you? We shut them down hard. (gasps) Wow. Uh, And Aaron reached out and said, you know, no, we're we're just a class trying to learn about this stuff. And by the way, will you come and speak? Oh, okay. Yeah. Opportunist. You know, I asked Ben to come in and speak and he gave these great talks that were very grounded and lucid and – my students really enjoyed it. And he was like, hey, you know, we've hired this new engineer. He's a really sharp guy. We're looking for someone who would work with him and redesign MailChimp and, and start from scratch. So I was always very attracted to the brand. There were other brands out there, and I could never remember their names because they all just sounded the same. But MailChimp with this funny monkey, I could see the, the, the fingerprint of, of real people, even though this was before I met Ben um, and Dan, that – There was something about that that was really attractive. So getting to work on MailChimp and work on the total redesign and, and, you know, rewrite every line of code um, with our our lead engineer, that was, you know, a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So at the time, did the Rocket Science Group still exist with MailChimp as one of its offerings? Or was it this at this point that you decided this is when we're taking MailChimp big time? Yeah, yeah. We we flipped the switch. We took a year to sort of wind down all client design projects so that we could focus on this. Now, I read that because you weren't originally banking on MailChimp, you felt that you could take risks with it, be funny, be very non-corporate. And those are the very things that it seems that Aaron was attracted to and the foundation of everything that you now stand for. And I understand that originally when the company was still the Rocket Science Group, the email product that you built was originally going to be called the We Mailer. Right. <laughs> because right. it was small and fun. But ultimately, you decided on the name MailChimp for a very specific reason. What, what is that reason? Oh, uh, I, I think it was just because we were doing email marketing for some of our clients by hand, and we were watching how they do it, and it was a real manual process. We just felt like this is work that could hire a trained monkey to do that kind of routine work for you. <laughs> we had always had this mantra or something. It was, it was something that we always fell back on, sort of a design trick. I mean, it, clients, people always love monkeys. And now know. why not male monkey? It was taken. Oh. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> now, now you're a founder-run team of 150 introverts, extroverts, right brains, left brains, and you all declare that you work hard to make products that people love to use. Why do people love to use your product? I think what we're trying to do is make them feel like it's okay to be human. Just be casual about it. That's the hardest part. If If you can find a way to just write casually and be yourself, it's so much easier to write. It's just so hard to get set up 
to do that, to set expectations with customers when they subscribe to your newsletter and to sort of um, uh, come up with the framework for what the content is going to be, what should they expect. Um, if, they, if you set it up so that they expect something very formal, you're just setting yourself up to write something really, really boring, and it just becomes dreadful. So let's talk a little bit about what you think people should be sending or how they should be sending. You have what you call the email genome project, mm. which scans your users and their subscribers and billions of the messages that they're sending for information that can help improve the deliverability of an email. Of all the emails that you've ever sent, what do you think the average shelf life is for a subscriber's engagement in the content? Ooh, we, we, we did a study on this, and unfortunately I don't remember what that shelf life is. I think it might – the title of the post might have been about the half-life. The half-life. Engagement half-life. And yeah. is that something that listeners could find on the MailChimp website? Yeah, yeah. It's on the blog. But if, uh, it's just a few months. Okay. Now, if they put um, the words, say, half-life, engagement, into the search box, they should be able to find it. What oh, yeah. happens if they put the word boredom into the search <laughs> box? So if you're in MailChimp and you type boredom in the search box, um, it turns on asteroids mode <laughs> and you can destroy the application. <laughs> you know, you just reminded me though, um, when Aaron started about a year in, uh, it felt like we he had redesigned it. It felt more professional. It felt like the business could really take off and I was ready to strip all of the branding and rename MailChimp something else. Really? More corporate because it felt like we were more serious now. It was no longer a joke. And Aaron protested. Aaron and our lead engineer, Chad, just said, no, why, why the hell do you think we joined your company? It's because of the fun branding. You're about to take it away. What, what would have happened to Freddie? I don't know. I, I He'd be alone on the streets. Who created Freddie? <laughs> uh, that would be Freddy me. Freddie is the mascot. So did you draw yeah. Freddie yourself? I did, yeah. And why doesn't Freddie ever wear pants? Um, that would be too serious and uncomfortable. He's having a lot of fun and... without his pants. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> okay, so let's talk a little bit about your culture. Um, you have a culture that is quite unique and reminds me a little tiny bit of the Zappos culture where it feels very familial, very customer service oriented. Fast Company covered MailChimp recently and stated that you have added a splash of mischief to a product category not known for well, much of anything, as they put it. The company's mascot is a chimp in a mail carrier's uniform, pantless. Mail chimp employees brag about office pranks on the website, and a web-enabled Nerf cannon stands guard over the office. The company's online T-shirt giveaways trigger virtual stampedes. And from the beginning, however, that approach has been more than a dot-com posture. The culture of giving people permission to be creative has been one of the keys to MailChimp's success. So I want to ask you both, what does it mean by giving people permission to be creative? Do you think companies prevent people from being creative? Yeah, I think they get a little too prescriptive. Uh, you know, when Aaron came on board, I told him why I needed him what we needed, and I just gave him the keys. I, I was the designer prior to that, and uh, I didn't touch design. And I think it's, it's really getting out of the way. I think that a lot of companies, it's not a, uh, something that people actually say. The leaders say, okay, everyone go be creative, and when they do say that, it doesn't work very well. Um, the types of things that Ben might do, like 
bought a bunch of MakerBots for the company and put them in different departments and then watched to see who unboxed it first and who made the coolest stuff. And it's not tied to revenue in any way. It's creative exploration. So when you're in a studio and you try a lot of things and you try things knowing they don't all have to be winners and there's great value in that. And when companies say failure is not an option, success is no longer an option either because it's from failure, experimentation, um, creative ideation that you start to discover lateral connections, new things, that new directions you can go. I understand that your loose creative culture has also gone hand in hand with a very deliberate profits first approach to growth. And that has paid off your employees in ways that have gone far beyond job satisfaction. Anything that you can share with us in how you're doing that? I think they like the money. I think, <laughs> I think people like money. I was thinking money. it was so much more altruistic than that. I was thinking, oh, we do all these different things that, you know, change their lives in these really sort of small but profound ways. But I guess money does it too, right? I, I think it's about giving them the money and let them choose what altruism they want to do with it. I, I think the story that Dan and I like to talk about the most is – just bringing in some financial experts to help us plan what we do with this money. And they had proposed some offshore accounts. They had proposed a lot of weird, complicated schemes. And we said, screw it. This is way too complicated and it's not the right thing to do. Just set every employee up with this 401k and just dump it all into there. So now, like every year when we have, you know, a little extra profit, we dump that into all of their accounts. Dump is such a good word when it comes to money, don't you, you know, think? <laughs> you know, we, we, we had gotten I, – I had worked in a corporate setting where you had a 401k with matching and I always felt like a carrot being dangled in front of me to buy my loyalty and I, I swore I'd never do that for my company. But I love the idea of a 401k as a place to kind of dump funds instead of some offshore account. Uh, I'll put it in my employees. Let them deal with the tax consequences. It's a fun problem for them to have. So you have um, five rules for a creative culture, some of which we've already talked about, um, one of which is give yourself and your team permission to be creative. One of them is something that I think people would all agree. Meetings are a necessary evil, but you can avoid the conference room and make people meet in halls and so forth. Structure your company to be flexible. One really struck me as particularly fascinating, and that is to hire weird people. Um, not just the tattooed and pierced in the strange places kind, but people from outside your industry who would approach problems in different ways than you and your normal competitors. So talk about, if you can, um, an example of where that's worked particularly well at MailChimp. In our industry, email marketing is a really boring topic, and it gets incestuous. We read each other's blogs, and we're just repeating each other. Um, on our marketing team, we have some employees who joined us from uh, a music magazine. These, these, are, these are real writers who knew nothing about email marketing. And they came in and instead of sort of repeating the same stuff about DKIM and domain authentication and deliverability, uh, really boring junk now, um, they're writing wonderful case studies about customers, the kind you would read about. The case studies on the MailChimp website are fantastic. They, they, are, they are so inspiring and humanizing and who knew that there could be so many stories about sending emails. Is there one specific rule that you could share with people about how to get someone to open an email that you want them to read? Don't 
send the email unless you have something to say. That might mean every quarter. It might mean only three times a year. It's when companies start to feel the need to send it every week or every day or every single month, no matter whether or not they have content. Why are there so many horrible emails being sent now? I think they're doing it backwards. I think that they think that email marketing is, you know, marketing is how you get new customers. And we take a completely opposite approach. We say, talk to your customers, love your customers. They'll spread the word and do the marketing for you. So you're sort of walking the walk and talking to the talk to you is an awful, awful phrase. Right, but it right. really is. It feels like it's appropriate. Yeah. Um, I wanted to also ask you about something, Ben, that I uh, wrote down when I was watching your Creative Mornings talk. And you say um, that I always sound like an asshole when I say this, but if you're working for me and you are a creative person, it is not my job to make you happy. Really? Yeah. Why? Why not? My job is to give you compelling projects, make your brain hurt. That's what makes a creative person happy. Really? I think. That's my theory. You also say don't delegate the creativity away. Yeah. Do you feel that most founders of companies ultimately end up doing that, giving away the creativity and becoming managers? Yeah, I think business is uh, a a crafty thing. You're a craftsman. You build something. Somebody finds it useful and they buy it. And that's a connection you have with the customer. There's creativity there. It's when it gets big and administration of the business gets hard. You know, you, you need people who are good at administration. You need masters of business administration. Aren't those people remarkable? The, the and MBAs. they get so much joy out of managing. <laughs> well, people, people focus on the B and MBA, but it's the A. They're masters of the administration of your business. Don't forget what you started the business for. You build something. When people start forgetting that passion and what they built and the customer connection, yeah, you you lose it. How do you plan on keeping the customer communication as you grow and develop the company? I should say email, shouldn't I? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess you should. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm staying really close to the product. I'm working with the teams, building the product, and traveling a lot to meet with customers. And what is the largest number of email recipients that you've ever sent an email to? I think that's the point of our thing is we don't know... You don't know. Who our top client right. is or anything. It's oh, just that's nice. So everybody's equal. That's a right. democracy. Yeah. But when we email all of our customers and you have to press that button to millions. Do you feel joy or dread? I feel fear. <laughs> 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 I, I get the cold sweats and that's why underneath the send button it says this is your moment of glory. That and is, then once uh, you send it, it says done and done, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> High fives. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ben and Aaron, for being on the show. Thank you for creating a wonderful, wonderful marketing tool and connection device that we lovingly call MailChimp. To learn more about MailChimp or to design your own newsletter, go to MailChimp.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.